to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hi, everyone. Welcome to VC Law, a podcast brought to you by the American Bar Association. I'm your host, Gary Ross. Today, we have with us Chris Hayes, former senior policy counsel at Institutional Limited Partner Association and current advisor to several institutional investors. Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks, Gary. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Thanks, Gary. My name is Chris Hayes. I've I've been working in the private fund space for about 10 years, um, first working for emerging lower middle market GPs in the U.S. market uh, at a trade association called the Small Business Investor Alliance. And then five for five years after that, I uh, led the policy and fund terms work at the Institutional Limited Partners Association, or ILPA, as it's known in the industry. And ILPA represents around 570 institutional investors globally, which is about half the capital in, in the private funds market. More recently, I've been working in the blockchain space and also serving as sort of an advisor to a investment analytics firm called Omni that's doing a lot of really interesting things around fund terms. I'm happy to talk more about that, but also serving on the advisory board to Steward Asset Management, which is a strategic investor in private equity emerging managers that are launching their first funds. Fantastic. And Ilpa, how many members did you say they had while you were there? Uh, 570. So that includes public and private pensions, university endowments, charitable foundations, family offices, sovereign wealth funds, and developmental financial institutions. So a a wide cross-section of different LP types. And we thought, I think when I was there, it was about $2 trillion in assets versus maybe a $4 trillion market. And and I just want to clarify that while I previously worked for ILPA, I'm not speaking for ILPA now, and, and they're a great group of folks working over there, but these are just my views and based on my experience. Well, we thought it'd be great to have you on and just talk about the viewpoint of institutional investors in general. You mentioned that there is a wide cross-section of of folks, and there are certainly a wide cross-section of uh, institutional investors, even when you narrow it from like all investors in funds to just institutional investors, there's still a wide cross-section. Like you said, there's sovereign wealth, there's pension funds and the like. What kind of commonalities do they have and what uh, differentiations did you notice? Sure. Well, I mean, I think, you know, LPs think about the world differently. You know, having worked for GPs and actually being someone who's more of a a people person in terms of, you know, people striking deals, trying to build relationships. It's a different mentality with institutional investors because they're thinking about allocation. They're thinking about deploying capital. How quickly can they push out money out the door in the right investments that are going to generate the returns they need with the right asset mix to meet their obligations to their beneficiaries, whether their beneficiaries are pensioners or whether they're uh, university endowments or, or whatever might be relying on it. So they definitely think things, I think, a little bit more analytically. And one of the things that they're really looking at is really around team, right? So they're looking at a team and a strategy. And is this team going to be the right partner to help me add value beyond what I could do myself? And I, I think maybe GPs are more focused on sourcing the portfolio companies and, and other things, whereas LPs are really focused on the right team, hence the focus on key person provisions and agreements, as well as does the strategy fit into my what I'm trying to plug 
a whole in terms of my asset allocation strategy. So it's much more numbers focused rather than maybe deal oriented. So for example, if they want to have exposure to West Coast tech companies, they would go out and try to find a fund manager that has a fund that's focused on that? Well, I I mean, I think, yes. I I mean, I think they would either try to find fund managers that focus on that, or they'd be, you know, many, obviously they have fund managers contacting them all the time. And I think that is one of the things about LPs. They, They are constantly being approached and bombarded with pitches. And so, you know, one of the reasons ILPA exists actually is to provide a bit of a safe space where they can talk to their peers and learn from their peers about how they're thinking about investing. Whereas most of the other events they'll be at, they'll be with GPs where they are getting getting pitched or, or you know, there's sort of a business development motive. So that, that is one of the drivers of, of ILPA membership is sort of an LP only space um, where they can be with peers and really kind of learn from others in the space. Yeah, it sounds like that was probably necessary. Yes, the the funds constantly have potential portfolio companies pitching to them. And then at the same time, <laughs> turn around, the LPs constantly have GPs pitching to them. Yeah. And I, look, I mean, institutional investors and LPs are not a monolith by any means. Um, and they all have different approaches and, and different focuses. And, and I've actually been learning that now as I've been talking to LPs in, in some of my advisory role about, you know, what sort of strategies are they looking for? And it's really trying to to understand what what problem they're trying to solve at the moment. And I think, you know, as GPs are thinking about which LPs to approach, obviously looking at ones that have done it, done your strategy before is obviously a good sign, but also, you know, ta- talking to various LPs and saying, hey, is this a strategy that that's appealing to you? Then, then that's really helpful. Or, you know, obviously a team that comes out of a high performer is always going to get attention from, from LPs, right? Because they're thinking about return drivers maybe more than particular strategy. Yes, and I would think for an institutional investor, it would be hard for an emerging GP, someone without a track record to really get on their radar. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely do think that is challenging, right? So some of these folks have EM programs, you know, New York State Common, for example, has strong EM programs, so it's text teachers. But many of the times those are outsourced to fund to fund platforms to mm-hmm. run, like your Harbor Vest or your Grosvenor's. Or some of them, for instance, some of the plans in Illinois have have more diversity-oriented ones. And I think right now there's definitely an interest in, particularly, you know, from the endowment space and folks like that who are looking for diverse groups to bring them into their field of vision. But then there's also challenges that LPs have. So if you think about the market right now, one of the biggest challenges is really denominator effect, right? So many of them are over-allocated to alts. Uh, in their portfolio with sort of the decline in public market asset values. And so they may be limited on where they can deploy capital. And in that case, they might be really focused on re-upping to existing managers already in their platform. And so that are, those are just some of the challenges that emerging managers probably are facing at the moment. I would think that there are allocations to private funds that like those could potentially be marked down as well. It just takes a little bit longer for those to get marked down than as opposed to the public equities where you know immediately. That's true, yeah. Uh, and there is often a lag, so maybe that will smooth out in 2023 um, as we, we move forward. But that's definitely something I've been hearing from you know LPs I've been talking to about you know being over-allocated or not being able to deploy more. But then you also have to think about, if you think about large LPs, you know, if you think about public pensions, books like that, they're never going to be penalized for 
reinvesting in a, a big name like a Blackstone or a KKR, right? If, if a Blackstone or KKR fund doesn't perform, their board isn't going to come to them and say, that was a bad investment. Why did you give money to Blackstone? But right. some emerging manager no one's ever heard of and that loses money, right? There's a little bit more risk um, for the LP. And so um, those are certainly things that LPs have to think about as well. Yeah. Well, one, one project that I found interesting was one that you actually spearheaded, the ELPA, uh, or as I understand it, you spearheaded, you can tell us more, but the ELPA fund, uh, the ELPA model documents that came out, a model limited partnership agreement and model subscription agreement. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how that project came about? Sure. So I'm happy to do that. So, you know, when I when I joined ELPA back in 2017, there was sort of a feeling that I was an attorney and, and I should take over some of these projects. But really many of these legal document projects really came out of one of the foundational elements of ILPA, which was around the ILPA principles. So um, I'm sure if people are familiar with the ILPA principles uh, 3.0, version 3.0 was just released a few years ago, but the first version was released back. Some people might be first, but I, I'm sure there's a lot of people in the audience that are not. Sure. So the, so the ILPA principles were first released back in the global financial crisis in 2009 and really set out sort of bright line written standards, easy to understand, not in a legal document about, you know, what LPs should think was fair in the marketplace for terms or what, what LPs thought was appropriate. And obviously ILPA's members were extensively involved in sort of figuring out what, what those principles should be around investing in, in private funds. Um, and the first version of the ILPA principles was actually quite impactful in the marketplace, um, right? You have a large percentage of LPs in the market. The global financial crisis actually changed sort of the negotiating environment where LPs, um, it was a bit more of a buyer's market at that time for a brief period. Um, and those mm -hmm. principles were quite effective. They were then updated again in 2011 uh, and then subsequently again, I guess early, probably in 2019. Uh, I think was the most recent version. And so those those principles um, really got much more technical and detailed in version 3.0. But, you know, for the average LP, maybe it was hard to, right? LPs don't create their own model LPAs, right? They aren't, they aren't the propagators of the, the fund agreement. And so those are controlled by a couple large law firms in the VC space or in the private equity space um, that really control their own standard form for that law firm. Um, and, you know, LPs are reacting to those agreements that they're seeing, as opposed to picking up an agreement and saying, you know, telling the manager that that's, that's their, the form that they should use for all their investors. That's, that's not really obviously how the market is driven. But, you know, right. And in contrast, uh, in contrast, it's contrasting to venture capital private financings where everybody is kind of coalesced around the NVCA documents. We don't really have that yet in the fund space. Yeah. And I, I think that's a little, yeah, those are a little bit different when the NVCA documents. So there are some models out there. You bring, you bring up the NVCA documents, you bring up ISDA has some great documents in, in the derivative space where the idea was to create standardization and reduce some of the friction in this market. I think the differences between the private fund markets and, you know, say the derivatives market or or the um, the venture financing for portco market is, uh, you know, the people creating the agreements aren't necessarily the people who uh, have an incentive to reduce the costs of of the of the legal <laughs> negotiations, and so 
right? If if you think about the GP, those those costs are paid as an organizational expense of the fund. So the LPs pay the cost for the attorneys to negotiate the document against them. And so there isn't as much price sensitivity to say, hey, why don't we just reduce these costs and friction and coalesce around, you know, ideal terms in the marketplace? Um, you just don't have the same incentives that you do, say, in the derivatives market where you have large financial institutions who all, all of them are buying and selling among each other, and they all have an incentive to reduce their costs. And, and same with the venture market, where I think, you know, much of that is controlled by the venture funds and their lawyers. This is my perception, as opposed to the portfolio companies. And so adoption of standards is probably a little bit easier. So so when you think about the ILPA model LPA, it, it was never going to, the only way you could really create an effective model that could be standardized by the industry was if you went to a couple large GP law firms at ILPA and said, hey, let's create a standard together. But that might not even work. Uh, and then that standard would probably not be very LP friendly for LPs. So that that's sort of the challenge when you're creating a model document. But what we thought the benefit of this agreement would be would be first, you know, as a broader socialization of what LP terms LPs want to see in the market, right? So I think it, it gave LPs basically the technical text for the ILPA principles so they could go and pull the actual provisions. So if they were relying on saying, hey, we want to push this term in our negotiations, say key person terms in line with what the principles have, here's some actual text that could just be lifted off a publicly available document and in, in inserted in the course of our negotiation. Or, hey, if I'm a new GP who wants to attract LP capital, I can pull this agreement and, and you know use it as a starting point for my fund. Right. And, and the agreement is designed for a buyout fund, right? That, that, that's, it's obviously difficult to create an agreement that would apply to every strategy. But I, I, I think that, you know, and just fundamentally, one of the really beneficial things was these agreements are all secret and confidential, right? These, these law firms control these forms. And this was the first real publicly available free model limited partnership agreement that you could put out there in the market. Um, and as someone yeah. who led led the advocacy efforts and public policy efforts at ILPA, you know, there's a lot of comments be that were being made in the policy discussion about, well, LPs get whatever they want in the agreement. And and the thing is, no one knows what LPs are getting in the agreement because all the agreements are secret uh, and subject to confidentiality provisions. And the LPs don't have the ability to, you know, release those agreements or or put them out in the market and and in fact have fought that. Uh, many times under FOIA requirements, for example, at public pensions. I, I know a couple of years ago, some of these agreements leaked and there was this significant concern from the private fund industry that these documents had been released. So that that, that continues to be a, a significant impact in the market, this real opacity around what terms are market, right? This is not a fully transparent market about what terms are standard. It's It's a market that is controlled by confidentiality provisions and the agreements that are seen are only seen by the industry participants. So there's no data or analysis impact research being done on those terms and what's typical beyond sort of general survey, um, surveys right. that are done of LPs. 
Yeah, let's uh, let's go ahead and talk about some terms. So I'll throw out sure. some terms from ILPA and and uh, well, let's talk in general about GP fiduciary duties. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Uh, you know, are GPs out there trying to waive fiduciary duties? What recourse do LPs have? What's what what's kind of the from an institutional investor side? What's your take on fiduciary duties? So look, this this was a really significant issue for a number of LPs that. I was working with, right? And and particularly folks on the legal side. And if you think about institutional LPs, particularly the public pension community, they have their own fiduciary obligations, right? They are often fiduciaries to beneficiaries of the pension. And so when you're eroding fiduciary duties that are in the fund agreements that you're deploying pension dollars into, you know, that, that kind of conflicts a bit potentially with you know, if you're public pension, maybe your state law fiduciary duties as, as a pension, et cetera. And I think what we saw over the past, I think in the early 2000s, was a real shift in the law in Delaware, as well as in the Cayman Islands, obviously the, the two main fund domiciles in North America, where their contract law basically allows you to contract away the duty of care and the duty of loyalty under you know, an agreement between sophisticated parties. And so essentially under Delaware law, as of 2004, you can completely remove your requirements for a duty of loyalty and a duty of care. The only thing you have to have is the duty of good faith and fair dealing, which is not very, very useful, right? If you think about the duty of loyalty, that's around making sure that the funds interest, the people who gave all the capital to the manager are put ahead of the interest of the manager themselves. And it really gets to conflicts of interest, issues where, you know, maybe the, you know, where the SEC had found a variety of issues where, you know, managers hadn't put the interests of the investors ahead of their own or were engaged in complex transactions that maybe weren't looking out for the fund's interests and the investors in it. And I think LPs were concerned about this continual contracting away of the fiduciary duties in the agreement, as well as, you know, their efforts to try and negotiate improvements to the fiduciary standard in the side letter agreements, right? So often institutional LPs, large ones, were able to maybe negotiate an element where they said, oh, well, in the side letter, the GP will take into account the interest of, of the investors. And we, there was sort of a, a feeling in these agreements that there became increased use of sole discretion language, right? So really that right. the manager could often act in their sole discretion. And unfortunately, in these agreements, um, there is no set standard of care section, right? The standard of care is sort of diffused throughout the document um, where it's not clear like what particular standard is always owed to the investor. Is it a negligence standard? Is it a gross negligence standard? Do they violate their fiduciary duties if they breach the LPA, which you would think would be be an impact. Um, so all of those things I think were concerning. Obviously, you have these state law contractual fiduciary duties, and those are the only ones that LPs really can enforce for themselves. And then you have the Investment Advisors Act, for instance, in the US, which has its own fiduciary obligation on the manager. Unfortunately, that obligation can only be enforced by the SEC. There's no private right of action under the Advisors Act. And that was this continual dichotomy where managers found that under the advisors act yes we're not allowed to remove our 
our fiduciary obligations under the Advisors Act. Yes, the SEC could bring a breach of fiduciary duty claim, but we're over here contracting them away under Delaware Cayman Law. And that, w- that was a real concern for, for ILPA's members um, and something that they're trying to address. And obviously, we've seen that impact in the recent SEC private fund rules. And I know you've done a podcast on this more recently, where tried to address that that sort of weird gap where um, the Advisors Act says you can't contract them away, but then over and under the contract, they're being removed. And right. I think wait, it, it's difficult, right? When you think about this, like, what does that really mean, right? And and if you look at the comment letters on the SEC rules, you'll see some really strong opinions for GP counsel, LP counsel uh, about, oh, this will, LPs will just willy-nilly just be suing all these GPs and it'll be terrible. And I And I think there's sort of the lawyer view of it, like let's eliminate as much risk as we can from our client, right? And I, I think that's a normal reaction. And why why wouldn't you remove those duties if if you could, where where there's no private right of action that, that makes total sense from a pure legal negotiation standpoint? I, I and I think LPs don't want to spend their time suing GPs. I, I think the idea right. was that when they're thinking about a transaction or a potential conflict, what matters is that fund agreement. And the view I think that we had was really thinking about, okay, are the partners at the fund going to go to the, the general counsel and he's probably going to review the agreement and say, can we do this or not? It's not like the, the GP's investment professionals are going to sit around and say, yeah, let's do this and put our own interests ahead of the fund. It's going to be, hey, we have this transaction. It's really interesting. We want to do it. Are there legal barriers to doing it? Right. And then they'll get to G- GC to look at the agreement and they say, oh, you can totally go ahead and do this. Or here's here's the potential risk. And and the idea was to shift, maybe promote a bit more caution on those transactions to help address some of the conflict of interest. And and that's where sort of the rubber meets the road, right? These are sort of squishy concepts. And it's very rare for LP to sue a GP, not only because of their, you know, their impression in the market, right? LPs are competing for allocations for managers, so they don't want to deter managers from taking them on as investors. And ironically, in my time in private fund world, it's it's actually really funny when you talk to GPs about how afraid of the LPs they are. And then when you talk to LPs, how afraid of the GP they are right. about losing yeah. their allocation. And it's kind of like, you know, it, it's just an ironic situation where I don't think either side maybe fully realizes that the other side is also petrified of alienating <laughs> the other. So. Yeah, to, to, to me, uh, it's appropriate to waive fiduciary duty when you're talking about an SPV, right? An SPV and you're saying, hey, everyone, uh, we have an allocation in company A, everyone can invest in company A. And then it's kind of, uh, I feel like that's okay, because hey, everybody understands it's company A. And hey, if the uh, manager of the SPV also, you know, is affiliated with a competitor or whatnot, or has some relationship with company A, which they normally do, that seems okay. But just sort of out and out waiving fiduciary duty for a blind pool, that's kind of something else. And we, we, we definitely see pushback for that when we try to waive that when we're representing GPs and informing the fund and trying to waive it. Uh, it's not very long before we get pushback on on that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Another thing I want to talk about is something I just the other day got an email from someone for uh, a fund that we launched. I mean, one one 
thing is when a, a law firm is retained, you know, we're retained by the GP. So and then we go back and forth with the GP to to develop the, the term sheet and then the limited partnership agreement. And there's not always someone on the other side of the table, right? Because we're sitting on the same side of the table. And then we go out with the with the agreement and then the uh, um, the client as much as we'll tell them, hey, you know, you need these things, uh, especially this first thing I'm going to talk about. A lot of times the client will say, no, no, I don't want that in there. Uh, and then we go in and then you get, you know, an LP counsel saying, you know, why don't you have this? And one thing is the GP removal. And oftentimes we try to tell clients like, hey, you know, it's better to go out there with your own removal section than to let an LP, you know, kind of draft it themselves and see that. Talk a little bit about GP removal and how important that is to LPs and, and when it might come up. Because a, a lot, I mean, I saw in the, OPA LPA they have in their removal for even without cause. I think what's important to know about removal provisions is they're extremely unlikely to be triggered, right? So we had done some surveys of LPs at ILPA, and, and, and I think some of this is actually public. We, we put out something uh, from an ILPA survey last year um, in 2021 when I was there that you know less than 3% of institutional LPs in the survey had actually seen an, a removal. So, so like this is like extremely rare, almost never happens, and especially a four cause removal. A four cause removal is almost never used, and that's why I think there's a, a shift towards no fault removal provisions being more valid and useful because often the the four cause removal offer requires there to be some sort of final judgment in a court, um, right. which is just going to take too long. Right? That that that's a long time. LPs don't want to spend their time, they're investors, they're not lawyers suing people in court. That's right. They have 300 funds in their portfolio. They don't want to, this is just one of them. And I, I think that's, you know, there's sort of a challenge around getting LPs to act as a, as a group to address a problem GP, right? Um, where something's going wrong. And so anyway, so first it's rarely used for cause, even more rare. And that's why no fault is, I, I think, much more industry standard. There's also this issue of, of the publicity of, of GP being removed for cause. LPs don't want to be seen as having invested in one that was removed for cause. And right. they have their yeah. own headline risk concerns about that. I think it's a, it's a mix of those things. And, and so when the model LPA was being drafted, obviously the for cause provisions are quite strong, but the no fault removal provisions also were strong because... I think there was a feeling that those were more likely to be used. And if folks were looking for like a more LP friendly standard, no fault provision, they could pull that out of that agreement. And that's kind of, I think how we thought of the model LP being used was really people could go and say, okay, I need a key person provision or a no fault removal provision. Let me look at what the ILPA model LPA says. And since it's public, the GP is familiar with it too. And maybe would already understand what their problems were. Yeah, and I think that you all have what seventy five had seventy five percent or something like that, which is really what we see. We we see anywhere from we we normally see eighty percent eighty percent of the LPs vote to remove somebody without cause. Yeah, and, that, and as you can see, that's kind of a high bar to get that many LPs to agree, right? And right. and LPs, yeah. I think there's often people often criticize LPACs for these kind of things, but that hard to get a bunch of LPs to focus on this one prompt fund. And, you know, I think I think one of the cases we always look to uh, in the LP community as sort of an example of where GP things can go wrong is the the Abraj case, if you're familiar with that a few years ago, mm-hmm. and kind of 
what it took to get LPs to focus to actually do something about the GP where there were suspicions and concerns. Can and, you, uh, can you yeah. quickly talk about that, Kay? I mean, uh, maybe after you get through answering this question, it might be helpful. Yeah, so can... this was okay. a really high-flying manager based in Dubai, really focused in emerging markets. I mean, the, the founder of the fund was speaking at Davos. There were a lot of very prominent endowments, public pensions, foundations that were invested, include, sorry, in developmental finance, uh, finance institutions. Ultimately, it was found that there was commingling of funds and taking money from uh, basically calling capital and not actually purchasing the portfolio companies and, and a lot of various shenanigans that happened um, with money missing in the funds. They took a while for certain LPs to to catch on to what was going on and looking at asking for financial statements, et cetera. And it's, it's a really an instructive case about how the downside risk provisions in a fund agreement can be important. Um, and a lot of lessons were learned from that agreement. Unfortunately, not all of those lessons are really public lessons because of the, the confidentiality provisions in these agreements. But that was obviously an instructive case of, hey, here's why you need certain protections in there if something does go wrong. But I think most GPs and most LPs are focused on the upside of the of things where they're hoping it's all going to work out um, and maybe spending less time on on the fund agreement where the lawyers are. But ultimately, as you know, that's that's where people are looking when stuff actually goes wrong. Now, you mentioned the LPAC. Or why, why don't you talk a little bit about whether, from an institutional investor perspective, is it better to have things requiring the approval of the LPAC or requiring the approval of all LPs? And does it make, let, let, let's go with the uh, terms. You know, we just had this come up the other day, uh, life of the fund. And the question was whether to have it extending beyond in uh, VC funds at typically 10 years and plus one and plus one at discretion of GP. And then if you want to go after that, then you need some kind of approval from someone. And then the question was whether to uh, get approval from the LPAC or get approval from the majority of LPs. And we're going back and forth with LP Council about that. Why don't you talk a little bit kind of in general, from your perspective, is it better to require approval of the LPAC or uh, require a majority of all LPs? Well, I, I think that probably the impression might differ depending on who the LPs are and whether they're already on the LPAC. If you have a seat on the LPAC, <laughs> right. you yeah, on the LPAC. LP, yeah. uh, and you might see the ability to you know, protect your own interest, right? Because LPAC members don't have a fiduciary obligation to the fund. They just have a fiduciary obligation to their own institution. And so that's an inherent challenge of the LPAC structure, right? When you think about private funds versus registered funds where you, where you have an independent board, this is not an independent board. And I think there's... Something like that that would extend the fund's life, uh, my sense would be that it's something that impacts all LPs. And so it's something that should probably go to the full fund, whereas it, it probably depends on what sort of decisions being reached. A conflict of interest, maybe it's more quick and efficient to have that approved by um, an LPAC rather than all funds, right? So in, in some cases, getting approval from all the LPs in a fund is not really super practical or efficient. Things that are core to the economic interest, I think, like extending fund life or things like that, then I do think there's sort of an obligation that, you know, at least this is my impression that uh, all LPs should be involved in that, or at least provided a, an ability to exit. I, I noticed that some people pointed out that the ILPA LPA did not 
have a provision for removing somebody from the LPAC. Now, in fairness, I don't often see in um, in LPAs a provision for removing an LP from the LPAC, but it's an interesting question because sometimes you might have somebody who's um, you know, agitated for some reason, or you know, who knows going what's going on in their individual, you know, in their individual capacity or whatnot, and they're sort of blocking things and whatnot. Talk a little bit about that. It kind of was there any discussion of kind of removing somebody from the LPAC or kind of what's your view on on uh, the GPR? I guess you could have a or a fund in general removing somebody from the LPAC. Well, you know, I, I think uh, to be honest, I it, it's been a while, so I'm not I'm not sure if that was something that came up. But obviously, I think that would potentially be a, a difficult compromise issue for LPs about removals. Certainly, there's frustration from certain LPs where LPs on an LPAC aren't really engaged or aren't right. aren't like uh, focused on actual taking decisive action when there's a problem. But an LPAC is better than nothing. So I think that's the impression, right? And it, LPAC seat obviously goes to usually the largest institutions. And so it can be an impediment to change or it can help provide a useful resource to the GP. I certainly think, you know, that, that's a tough answer. Yeah, I'm trying to think about how I would feel about particular LPAC members being removed. I think, you know, it, it would certainly make sense to have some sort of provisions around removing an LPAC member. I, I'm sure it would make sense uh, yeah. The most common thing that we see is an LPAC person just kind of drop out, like you talked about. They sort of just stop communicating. They've got more, uh, you know, bigger fish to fry and whatnot, and they just and then and then you have trouble getting stuff passed because, you know, one or two people have just checked out. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there'd be legal challenges to doing it because often an LPAC C is probably included in a side letter provision, is my mm -hmm. understanding, and so there might be issues about doing it. But certainly, like a time and attention challenge could be certainly grounds, I think, potentially for removal. But I, I, what I don't want, I think people would want to see is the GP being able to unilaterally remove an LPAC member or something like that. I agree. I don't think too many uh, LPs would agree with that. Let, let, yeah. let me ask you about another provision in here. Uh, the uh, ILPA LPA, so it requires GPs to furnish LPs with the list of all other LPs in the fund on a quarterly basis. I know a lot of our folks would not be okay with that. Uh, talk a little bit about why that was included and uh, if you got pushback from people about that. Well, the, this was, uh, you know, this is something that ILPA had been working on for a while. I, I think, you know, obviously many of the provisions that, protect LPs in the agreement require LPs to collaborate and coordinate or or in some way to to talk to one another, right? And if you don't know who the other people are in the fund, you only see them maybe if you show up to an LPAC meeting and, and the, some of the folks are physically there, then it can be very difficult to exercise the governance provisions in the document. And so I think you have to balance that versus certainly the anonymity that some LPs might wish to have, obviously some some sovereigns, some family offices, et cetera, would prefer to remain anonymous. And I, I think our view is really, it, it sort of should be at the request of the LP to be remo uh, removed from that list, as opposed to um, something that the, the GP just wasn't sharing the list. And there always used to be an LP register. Uh, and actually, my understanding in Europe is actually one is required, at least in the UK, um, where you actually have to register and list all, all, the, all the investors, limited partners in the fund. And if it is a partnership, then you should know who your fellow partners are in the fund. And so, you know, I think it was really focused on being able to exercise the governance provisions 
So if there is an abrage type situation like we talked about, you could actually get the LPs together and uh, contact them and actually know who they were to implement some of the provisions in the agreement. And so that's really the focus of that. The LPA also allows for a supermajority of LPs to impose a haircut on the GP's carried interest. So if they have a, a if they if they know who each other are, they could just get together and say, hey, instead of 20%, let's just give this person 9%. Uh, but that might be kind of overblown because as you said, a lot of the LPs, you know, there's relying on uh reliant on the GPs as the GP is of the the LP, and nobody really wants to upset the Apple cart. Well, yeah, and there's that, but there's also right, like. LPs prefer carry. I, I think maybe that isn't fully understood. LPs prefer carry over management fee because it drives performance. So mm-hmm. I think your biggest protection against LPs cutting carry is incentivizing the performance of the GP to produce the returns that they're expecting. And that is what drives what we would call alignment of interest in the space is you'd much rather a manager be driven to get the 8% Pref uh, and get into their carry rather than be taking more management fee and not actually taking risk and and delivering the returns right. And so I think most LPs would always prefer a carry driven strategy and more performance fee rather than management fee. Yeah, that's a good point. You don't want your GP on a beach somewhere just living off the management fees. Yes, continual uh, challenge. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the, the last thing I'll ask you about is. Uh, Successor funds. So this is something we always go back and forth over. Talk a little bit about GP successor funds um, and what the concerns around that are, and kind of what you like to see when you're advising institutional investors. Uh, what what do you ask for in terms of when the GP can have a successor fund when they can launch one? Sure. Well, I'll share. Obviously, I'm not an investor, so I'm, I'm not fully an expert on this. But I I think like when you're thinking about coming back for a successor fund, obviously LPs are aware of the, the financial motivations of, of the manager, but I think the biggest concern is really around time and attention, right? So right, invest, uh, LPs are investing in a team and they want that team to be focused on delivering returns. You know, you often hear LPs concerned that their manager is not spending enough time in the office or, or is at their beach house too much or whatever it might be. <laughs> I've often heard these from LPs and you're kind of like, do you want a time clock for them to be punching in on? And I think, you know, when you think about coming back for the next fund, your question is, okay, are, are they spending enough time on the original one that I already put money into to generate the outperformance there as opposed to this new fund? And I think that's probably one of the biggest concerns around successor funds. You know, obviously thinking about track records and those other things, but obviously there's different motivations from the GP, right? The GP wants to be coming back relatively quickly for, for fund two or fund three, right? And so, yeah, I would say that's probably the biggest concern for LPs. Right. And we, 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 we see anywhere from 60 to 80% in terms of what's been committed to the current fund, committed both in your initial investment plus kind of earmarked follow-on, uh, 60 to 80% kind of spoken for on the fund before they can launch another one. So well, mm-hmm. within there, obviously, the LP, you know, they always want it to be higher. So they want it to be 80%. Our people want it to be 50 or 60%. And usually we land somewhere between 60 and 80% on those. Yeah, and, definitely- and I also think you have to think about LP pacing schedules as well, right? Where 
where they're thinking about how much they have to deploy and what their allocations look like. Right. Well, great. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Is there any kind of final thoughts you want to leave us with? Sure. I mean, I, I think what what's really important is business folks to both be on GP's and LP side to be talking more frequently. More information is always good. So always more information you can share with your your LPs about what's going on, right? They they hired you and the team for a reason. And so the the closer relationship you can have with them to explain maybe where something didn't go right rather than not talking about it, I think is always a really positive element. So just I'll I'll leave that as a takeaway. Okay. I guess that's uh, uh as with any relationship, right? Information is always good. Or most of yes. thank you so much chris for joining us today and giving us all this good information yeah thanks gary really appreciate you having me and uh happy to if if folks reach out to me on linkedin happy to chat with them further yeah well great enjoy the rest of the 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 season Uh, and to the listeners thank you for joining us for another episode of vc law brought to you by the american bar association Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.